like to focus my question on an issue which seems to be one of, one of the principal points of contention between John and uh, Evan and Randy and also something I've written about, which is whether the Constitution should be interpreted from an originalist point of view in the way that ordinary people might have interpreted it or whether it should be interpreted in a way that legal experts might have interpreted it. And it seems to me that sort of both sides of this argument could be a little bit better developed than they have been so far and that, for, for example, I would want to see some connection between either the, what I've previously called the populist approach or the elitist approach and sort of the core reason why we should be originalist in the first place that it leads to good results or is there respect for a democratic process or the likes. It seemed to me that there could be serious arguments for both sides here and both sides perhaps need more development of them, particularly since I think it's going to turn out that you can easily find quotes from the founding, some of which, like the ones in the paper, say, you know, this is interpreted the way that ordinary people would understand it, others would, others either openly saying that, you know, this is the way that lawyers understood uh, the term or the like. One possible compromise approach, and only just a possible one is that you might say I favor the populist approach for things where the ordinary reader, uh, when they come across this, would not think this is a highfalutin legal term. So when they come across something like judicial power to the ordinary person, that just means the ability to decide cases or something like that. Whereas when you come across a term like habeas corpus, I think the ordinary reader would say, yep, that looks like a sort of high food and legal term that I got to go to a lawyer to figure out what it means. So maybe you could be a populist about terms for which, you know, there is an understood ordinary meaning that would occur to the ordinary reader, but an elitist about sort of more clearly technical legal language. I'm not saying that's the only possible solution, but I'd be interested in what people think of it and also more generally how you, we would ground your views on this more deeply. Because uh, I've been trying to get originalists with very little success to think about this issue in a deeper way for several years now since I wrote a piece about the subject I presented at this very conference. Uh, so my hope is that your exploration of this issue will have more success in calling attention to it than my own have. Well, I liked a lot in the paper, but I wanted to ask about the part that left me the most uncertain. So. Um, uh, your distinction between interpretation and construction is, as you know, that's been contested, but it seems, that seems to me at least plausible uh, and uh, maybe helpful. And it also seems quite plausible to say that uh, judges or in interpreters or implementers should look to the spirit as well as the letter. Spirit seems to me, I think you sometimes say function or purpose or something like that. That seems to make sense. But it seems to me like a fairly natural response to that would be to say, well, of course, even in interpreting, you have to consult the spirit. You know, you, the, um, I think that would be fairly natural in just ordinary communications and other kinds of interpretation. You know, you all, sure, you, you consult the letter and you consult the spirit in interpreting. Um, so that the spirit part would fall on the interpreting side of the interpretation-construction divide. And then it might seem to follow, well, at that point someone might say, you don't need construction after that. You know, maybe, maybe spirit already gives you what you need. But, but on the other hand, if it seems plausible, there's still uncertainty and still uh, room for a need for construction. Then this is the part I wasn't sure. I'm not sure what the argument is that at that point, uh, the judge needs to consult spirit again. You know, the spirit's already kind of done its work in the interpretation side, I, I, I might think. And one might think that the judge at that point could then say, okay, now I've, I've done all that. I've, you know, I've complied with my duty of fidelity to the law and, you know, in its original meaning and so forth. But there's still uncertainty. Why at this point am I not... I, I, 
not free to do a Ronald Dworkin sort of approach or a more consequentialist approach and so forth. Uh, now, in the paper, I thought, you use the analogy of contract law quite a bit, but that seems kind of um, a little bit remote from here. I mean, uh, you can understand how in a contract between discrete people who are the ones who entered into the agreement and are the same people who are now trying to perform it or implement it and so forth, good faith might mean one thing, it might not mean anything like that when you have something where the people who are now performing and affected and so forth are not the people who entered into it. So, so it might mean something different. Uh, you could say the judge has a fiduciary, is a fiduciary. I'm okay with that, but it's not clear why once you get to the construction, that's a fiduciary for the people who enacted the thing. You know, why, why wouldn't that be a fiduciary in some other sense or for the people today? And so I'm not sure what the argument is for the consulting spirit at that point. Now, I know you've made clear that you're worried about your position being vulnerable because it leaves too much discretion in judges, and I understand that. Uh, on the other hand, it seems to me like someone, even an originalist, might think it's attractive to say spirits only on the interpretation side. Once we get to construction, we can do other things because that might be one way of fending off dead hand objections and, you know, too mechanical or, you know, too inflexible sorts of interpretations. But whichever way you went on that, I, I'm just not sure what the argument is for why spirit is supposed to be governing on the construction side rather than Dworkin or consequentialism or something of that sort. Uh, Larry Sullivan. So you obviously have an originalist account of interpretation operating in the background of the paper. Um, but in addition to that, your method of construction uh, seems uh, to be originalist in some sense, and Randy mentioned this in his comment. So th that relationship is um, uh, potentially confusing, right, given an understanding of originalism that says that we're after the original meaning of the text. The question then becomes, in what sense could a theory of construction be originalist. So the second aspect of this is that potential confusion is exacerbated by the fact that there are views of interpretation that would put much of what the paper is doing potentially on the interpretation side of the ledger. In particular, original methods originalism and what I'm going to now call original law originalism, both might suggest that if this was sort of the view of judicial duty at the time of the framing, then it is part of the original meaning of the constitutional text. Thirdly, with respect to the clarifying the relationship, um, it seems to me that, that your own view as articulated in the paper involves three different levels of originalism in your theory of construction. So the first level is that your theory of, cons of construction is constrained by original meaning, right? And as all originalist theories of construction must be. The second way in which your theory of construction is uh, uh, originalist is that it takes the original 
function of particular clauses and of the Constitution as a whole as a guiding principle for uh, the elaboration of constructions within the construction zone. And then there's a third way in which you're originalist, which is that you believe that this view, that the function guides construction, is a view that would have uh, 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 prevailed at the time the Constitution was adopted. So it's an original view of constitutional construction that is a third and distinct way in which your theory is originalist. And all of, all of the, but all of this, I think, needs a lot more clarity, because otherwise there's just so much potential for confusion here about, about in what sense your theory is originalist. Second point is much shorter. Um, <laughs> and it has to do with Steve Smith's comment, right? So another way of looking at what Steve Smith said about what the moral readings people say and so on and so on is that since you are at bottom saying that any approach to constitutional construction must be given a normative justification that instantly raises the question as compared to what. So I think there is no avoiding uh, you're at least taking on the question of pairwise comparisons, right? If this is ultimately a normative question, then you have to have a normative justification for rejecting other theories of constitutional construction, including the ones that Steve um, just <coughs> mentioned uh, in his remark. Well, there's a lot there. Um, let me just take a piece of this, which I think is more a combination of Steve and Larry's uh, point. Um, it may very well be that um, once you adopt what we're calling an originalist theory of constitutional construction, what could be called that based on the spirit as well as the letter, that the exact line that separates interpretation for construction in any given instance is not all that easy to identify, that it, it one might shade into the other without being clear that you've now left the realm of communicative content and entered the realm of something that's not communicative content. Why? Because the communicative content of the text will be influenced by surrounding context. Contextual enrichment is part of interpretation. Uh, that's why, for example, I think ultimately Lysander Spooner's argument about the unconstitutionality of slavery doesn't work, because even though he says that these terms have a neutral meaning as well as, a, as an evil meaning, and therefore we should pick the neutral as well as the evil meaning if there's this kind of ambiguity. It doesn't work because, although for many years I wondered if it worked, I think once contextual enrichment really sank in, I, I, I acknowledge the fact that in context, these words, though they could be read ambiguously, were not ambiguous. That if you ask anybody to whom other persons or persons bound to service or persons held to service refer to, they would say slaves because Contextually, that is what they said. And to the extent that, that purpose is publicly known, it is possible that phrase, that terminology that seems ambiguous at the semantic level is not so ambiguous. And that means spirit could enter into the interpretation phase. So, at, but it doesn't matter so much where you draw the line as long as the line, as long as the method is being operated, is operating correctly. It's more of an academic debate about where the line is crossed. But the interesting point that Steve makes is, well, what happens if 
when, is there anything left after that ends? If, assuming you've exhausted all of that, what else is there? Well, one thing that has been left out of the discussion, both our presentation and John's criticism of it, I think, so far, is the degree to which we emphasize the role of constitutional doctrine or implementing doctrine in the paper. That is, I think, it's fair to say that courts develop implementing doctrines that is very difficult to say is part of the communicative content of the text itself. We all know the objection. Well, where in the Constitution does it say that? Because it oftentimes doesn't, because this is simply the means by which you put, you give legal effect to what the Constitution does say. When Justice Scalia came and visited my class to discuss his book um, on reading law, uh, naturally, my students were very interested in the part of the book in which he criticizes the interpretation-construction distinction, and so naturally at the beginning of the class I asked him to address the interpretation-construction distinction, and he, and he did his harumphing number about how, you know, well, there, historically there was no real distinction between these, and these terms were used interchangeably, what he says in the book. And that was fine, and I did, it was not my role as, my, as the host to press him on this, but later on in the, in the class, I. I asked him, when, at, like 90 minutes later, when he was maybe a little more relaxed or tired, um, I asked him, uh, well, you know, do you think judges or courts need to, be, uh, need to develop implementing doctrine to put into effect what the Constitution says? Uh, I think that's uh, Dick Fallon's phrase. And he said, well, of course, you know, of course. You have to do that. You have to do that. Now, the question is, what are you doing when you do that? I think you're engaged in constitutional construction when you do that, because those rules have to be constructed. They literally have to be constructed. Time, place, and manner regulation doctrine isn't in the First Amendment. But the question is, is it a good way of giving legal effect to what is in the First Amendment? And it's at that point our argument kicks in, I believe, in addition to everything else we've said, these doctrines need to be identified and adopted in good faith. That is, they have to be ways of trying to implement the spirit of the Constitution, as well as the letter, um, in good faith and not ways of exploiting ambiguities or vagueness in the document in order to undermine the text of the Constitution because the interpreter, in this case a judge or a court, doesn't like the Constitution and wants a way out. And we gave examples of the Blaisdell case, for example, of where we think that's going on and other cases as well. So that would be, I think, a, a pretty much unden undeniable area of judicial activity where judges come up with implementing doctrine that is beyond anything that could be remotely defined as interpretation that still needs to be done, and we believe needs to be done in good faith for the reasons we identify in our paper. Right, and you could take note, you could take issue with any number of implementing doctrines that have been developed by reviewing courts in order to deal with those cases, but you can't avoid the necessity of resolving the case in some fashion. So even if you take the view that everything in the Constitution is in principle determinable, there's no vagueness, there's no ambiguity, we can resolve all of that in principle, you'll come across a constitutional case where there's a set of facts and a judge will not be able to resolve that case on the basis of the uh, the available legal materials. And the question is, okay, well then what do you do? Um, you can either fill that gap well or you can fill that gap badly. You can do so in a way that actually um, uh, fulfills the function of that clause to the extent possible because you are capable of ascertaining the function of a clause even if you're not able to resolve a particular case by interpretation of the text. 
or you can do something that substantially undercuts the function of that clause. And we provide a number of examples of cases in w that we regard as good faith constructions and bad faith constructions, ones that resolve ambiguity and vagueness in a way that delivers on the function of the clause and ones that don't. So, I mean, the bottom line is, for us, is that you will come across cases that won't be uh, determined, even if they could be determined. And the question is, what do you do? Even doing nothing and saying, okay, well, you know, the government wins, or this is a search, or this isn't a search, that is something that counts as construction. And we're trying to provide a framework for doing it in, the way, in a way that, you know, if you want to call it an originalist form of constitutional construction, we think it's actually just construction. We wouldn't attach the, the word originalist to it, but we'll take that. And the rest of what Larry said is food for further thought. Um, okay, we have a long queue now and uh, less than 30 minutes to go, so I would ask speakers uh, or questioners to, uh, in good faith, uh, limit the length of their question in the spirit of the conference. Um, so our next uh, trio is Mike Rappaport, Mitch Berman, and Christina Mulligan. Okay, so um, I, I definitely agree with the, the comments about how there seems to be uh, very much of a convergence operating here. Um, and at a, in, in a certain point, it's, it's a little hard to know uh, <coughs> whether we're just arguing about semantics at a, at, at a certain point. But I'm, I'm not convinced yet. Um, so, uh, so let's say you, 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 you've got sort of some text and, and spirit here. So, so I'm going to sort of, so um, in, in terms of the paper's view of it, um, the text is interpretation and the spirit is construction, if I speak loosely. Um, under the, the original methods view, um, if the text and spirit was a method at the time, and a legal method at the time, which there's a lot of evidence for, I'm not coming out and saying that's, but, but let's assume for a second, then you know, both are saying we ought to do, look to text and spirit, right? Uh, the original methods, and, um, and Randy's also, Right when he says that um, John and I have an argument for them, a moral argument for why we should follow the original meaning, um, but there is a, a difference here um, b b between the two. So for us, the if we're taking the text and the spirit, that's all interpretation of a legal document. Um, whereas for for you guys, the text is only interpretation. <laughs> The spirit is, is a sort of moral argument. Now, it may be a moral argument for following, I don't know if it's following the law or following, uh, for following something. I understand it's not a case-by-case -case moral determinations, but, but um, uh, it's a moral argument. So there is a difference. So, so we have a much broader understanding of, of interpretation. So you ask, why should you follow the spirit? We would say you follow the spirit because it's, it's part of the, the legal meaning and you give a different type of answer, I think, unless I, I misunderstand you. Um, I was going to talk a lot about several other things, but uh, including the doctrine, but I'll stop. 
On the interpretation construction distinction, since you have a section that discusses people who've criticized it, I would just invite you to discuss my, com my different crafting <laughs> of interpretation. No, not the paper that we're talking about tomorrow, but I've written on interpretation and construction a few times. So here's the thought for you, which I think channels Steve Smith's idea. Law seems to be a little bit missing. Existing law, pre-existing law, law that exists prior to the judge's act of decision, is a little bit missing from the interpretation construction distinction as you and Larry gloss it. Because on your account, interpretation is the activity of trying to discover the communicative content of the text. And construction is an active activity, a creative activity of putting it into legal effect. What's missing is the idea that there's law already. So you might think of as a possibility and then explain why it's wrong. The idea that the, another way of carving interpretation construction is that interpretation is the activity of trying to discover the law. Not the communicative content, but the law. And then a second claim could be that the law is determined by the communicative content. Right? But those claims, instead of telescoping those two claims, as saying interpretation is conceptually or definitionally the activity of trying to discover the communicative content, you say it's the activity of trying to figure out what the law is. That seemed to be Steve Smith's idea of what constitutional interpretation would be and why he wanted to put spirit onto the interpretation side. Interpretation is the activity of trying to find out what the law is. Construction is what you do when the law is undiscoverable or or too vague to be sufficiently determined to resolve concrete disputes. And then you add a substantive claim, but not a trivial <coughs> one, to the effect that trying to figure out what the law is turns out to be just trying to figure out what the communicative content is because of the premise that the law is fully determined by the communicative content. So I want to suggest that that's a different way of carving things, and that makes sense of Steve's question, I think. This is one of those examples where Steve Smith is invoked, and Steve Smith needs to respond. I just want to, because Steve, apparently there's a Steve Smith rule about this. Yeah, so. Where did construction do? So, um, so this seems like really good advice for how to get judges to sort of behave in an originalist fashion, but I think the theory is not complete as it's set forth for the, for the following reason. So saying um, a good construction is when you're following the spirit in good faith seems neither necessary nor sufficient to get to, to tell if a construction is permissible. So on the necessary side, it seems that if nine judges have interpreted a clause in a certain way in good faith, and then a tenth says, well, I don't think that this is where the history and the law really leads, but I really like the results, so I'm just going to get on board. It seems weird to say that that's not a permissible construction, even though that judge will tell you that he was acting in bad faith by definition. And then on the sufficient side, it just it seems that if the only prong is following, trying to follow the spirit in good faith, that it's not possible to say, oh, this judge was acting in good faith but was mistaken. And it seems like we're that that seems like something very coherent to say, and that we would have trouble in some cases describing a situation without explaining it in that way. So it seems to me that the, this is very very important and correct. That there has to be some other thing in the story. Last three. Um, 
I don't think I have a response to everything everyone said. I, the last thing that Christina said is something that I've, I've thought about. I mean, I've thought about needing to think about. Um, <laughs> uh, and that is the idea that it, it, what's the difference between a bad faith reading of the Constitution and a mistaken reading of the Constitution? I, I think we need to think more about that. I think there is a difference. I think, you know, it's like pornography for some people. You know it when you see it. Um, but, um, or with, uh, obscenity, you know it when you see it. You know, pornography, you also know it when you see it. Uh, the, um, <laughs> but in a different way. Um, and, uh, but I think if you, you there, I think that if you look at a lack of fit um, between outcome and textual material that includes both communicative content and function and purpose, um, that you can pretty much derive a conclusion that that set of justices or judges, they just don't like the Constitution. They just don't like it. And in truth, we don't have to shut our eyes to the fact that in some respects we know that's true independently. I mean, for one thing, in the slaughterhouse cases, the majority almost came right out and said they don't like it. It was, it was sort of like these Republicans in Congress lost their head and we need to get us back to where federalism was before they put this stupid thing in the Constitution. Um, and later on, Christopher Tiedemann praises the court for doing exactly that in, t in those terms. He said, yeah, these were crazy people and, 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 they destroy and they really threatened our federalism. And thank goodness the court stepped in and, and got rid of that because our federalism is too good for that. So, um, and I think we might see the same. We might say the same thing about the Blaisdell Court. So there, again, something I need to think more. We both need to think more about. But there is a point at which I think you can no longer say, "Look, this is a good faith disagreement about the meaning of the text or the spirit of the text." That I mean, for example, this is a gun law that is not a good, that now we're getting into the, not getting into judicial construction now, but into legislative discretion. This is not a good faith effort to regulate guns in the interest of public safety that's respectful to the individual right to keep and bear arms. This is actually a way of trying to undercut that right by making it either more costly to exercise or by stigmatizing its exercise. And therefore, it's really not a good faith exercise of governmental power. I do think you can make that qualitative Conclude, you can reach that qualitative conclusion under certain circumstances, which we as lawyers are called upon to do all the time, and judges are called upon to do all the time um, uh, in a variety of different contexts. Yeah, I would just add that the problem that you've identified isn't a problem. I think it is a, I mean, it's a problem. It's not a problem that's unique to good faith construction. It's a problem that originalists have to confront when they uh, look at and try to evaluate opinions that adopt the language of originalism and draw upon historical evidence, and yet we're skeptical of the conclusions that they come to. So it's a, it's it's something that we need to deal with. Uh, we make an effort to identify examples of both good faith and bad faith construction. But yeah, it's something that needs to be developed further because you know it's it's not a it's not a light thing to accuse the judge of doing something in bad faith. Okay, we're going to move on to our next. Uh, Group of three, uh, John McHale, uh, Chris Green, and Richard Rand. And I say that in the spirit of, uh, of, the, uh, of this <laughs> proceeding that 
some of these comments are, like Larry's comments and Mitch's comments, are great comments for further thought, but don't really require a response on our part at this point. We just need to think about it in the future. And so that's why we're not ignoring them because they're bad. We're, we're ignoring them because we need to think about them. <laughs> um, John. So, I really like the paper. Uh, I wanted to ask you to elaborate a bit on your view uh, of the role played by the objects of the preamble in good faith construction. You touch on this only briefly, and I was quite surprised, frankly, how little attention you paid to that issue in particular um, in light of the 18th century background. Uh, I, I would characterize what you've done here as sort of opt for something like a clause-bound good faith construction approach rather than a whole text approach. And the, the 18th century background I'm talking about uh, it, there's quite a lot of evidence that, that at least one view, maybe the dominant view, was that you look to the objects clause of a legal instrument in order to ascertain the meaning of ambiguous uh, uh, terms and to ascertain the spirit of, of the document. So just a couple of examples. Brutus says this specifically. He says, the, you know, here's what I am worried about with this Constitution. On the one hand, it gives the judges the power to, um, to uh, judge in cases uh, of equity arising under the Constitution. And he says that is inevitably, inevitably going to mean that they're going to ascertain uh, the meaning of particular phrases in light of the objects of the preamble, and that's going to mean an aggrandizement of national power. Wilson uh, often looks to the preamble um, in interpreting the text. There's a great illustration of this in his law lectures when he's explaining um, the legislative powers of Congress. And what he does is he describes each of those powers as means which are related to specific ends of the preamble. And that's uh, more evidence of how he would construe those, uh, those powers. Um, and then, of course, Marshall, in several of the cases, you cite McCulloch and some other cases. I, I would submit to you that more often than not, when Marshall talks about objects or ends, he's not talking about the enumerated powers, but rather the objects of the preamble. Um, and then lastly, Story. In his um, uh, commentaries, has a, a whole riff about how um, the judge has to look to the purposes of the objects of the preamble in order to, um, not to identify additional powers that the government has, but to interpret the powers that are given in light of those purposes. So I just think there's a lot of um, material there to work with, and I'm surprised you didn't address it. I wonder what you would say about that way to ascertain the spirit of the Constitution. My guess is that doing this will take you where you don't want to go, because it is going to push, typically, interpretation in the direction of national power, uh, uh, often in, in ways that I think you're going to be resistant to, but I invite your response. Hang on. Rule of three. Um, so, Chris Green. Um, so I, I, two, uh, two quick thoughts. One is the attack on, on, on John, I think putting it in the context of the construction interpretation uh, distinction and kind of this longstanding dispute that y'all have had on that, I think that's a mistake. And it's part because of, I mean, this, all this stuff on clarification. And clarification, it seems to me, is a kind of construction. Clarification, you, one way to think of it, one way to implement it, uh, would be to put a burden of production on the government, but having a, a simultaneous duty of clarity is just keeping a burden of uh, uh, persuasion on the person challenging 
So, you know, it's like, a, you know, if I'm a, a, I kill somebody and I don't raise self-defense, I, I have a burden of producing whatever the self-defense thing is and showing that it's justified. If I don't do that, I'm, I, I can't raise it. But if I raise it, uh, the government still has to uh, pr uh, prove me guilty by, beyond reasonable doubt. You can have production on one side and, and persuasion on the other. Um, uh, second thing, the, the, the stuff about uh, a division of linguistic labor, I don't think that's the best way to think of a duty of clarity. I mean, judicial power, ordinary people know what that means. It means the power of judges, but then you have this other question, you know, what does that mean? What powers do judges have? I think Evan's comment uh, 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 that, oh, to have a division of labor means when you go to the expert, he immediately tells you with clarity. Well, no, you go to the expert, you go to a lawyer, say, well, what, what, what powers do judges have? You'll get something like Federalist, Federalist 37, where uh, uh, Madison goes on at some, some length saying, you know, judicial, executive, legislative power, we've fussed over this for years and we don't know what it means. So it's, it's a term that people know, but there's just facts that, that the experts uh, uh, have, to, have to figure out. And uh, so, you know, so, so fussing over like the phrase judicial power, so I don't have to, I, I only have to deal with Iridel Spade and I don't have to deal with Mason, when, just because he's talking about the power of judges instead of the phrase judicial power. I mean, the Mason evidence is very strong and you gotta deal with that. Um, but you don't, you don't have to get rid of this in order to get engagement anyway. So I would just say, you know, be a Rennick and just say, take clarification and then just, you know, run with that. Uh, so I guess it was uh, last year, I think Jeff Pojanowski uh, referred to oath theory as a thing. And now we have Chris Green and Will Bode and, and uh, some more oath theorists. It's fantastic. Uh, I, I had a, a one question about how I told you the last year. You could sign me up as an oath theorist. No, I, I remember, and you, you're a card-carrying member now. It's fantastic. Um, my question has to do with the way the, you view the moral content of the oath. As I understand it, you resist the idea that a oath as a promise has the moral content that is communicated at that time. Uh, and I, I, I'm not sure that, that, that's, that that's the right way to view it. You could imagine an oath at time, a certain time that's, uh, that refers to pre-existing 18th century rules, and that's one kind of oath. Its present meaning is to refer you back in time. And another oath would have a present meaning that refers you to rules that exist now. But in either case, the moral content of the promise is its present meaning. The only question is whether the present meaning refers you back to a prior moment. So I, I think that you don't mean to dispute that. And so when you talk about resisting the idea that the oath has a present content, I take it actually all you mean to say, and, and obviously it's a very important point that, that Will and Chris have, have written on, is that, in fact, you believe the present content does entirely refer one back to an earlier moment rather than ratify a present moment. So I see that you're nodding. I just wanted to ask that. I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's what we think. Yeah. yeah um, so the short answer to, uh, to John Mitchell's question is, is yes. Um, the preamble is... John McKyle. Oh, oh, Excuse me. Um, the short answer is, is yes. Uh, the preamble states the functions of the documents. It is, to the extent that the Constitution is a trust document, the preamble sets forth the purposes of the trust. And um, to the extent that uh, inquiry into the function of a particular clause shorts out, I think it's entirely legitimate <coughs> to have recourse to the functions of the document as a whole. Um, so I, mean, we, I think we have a couple of sentences in there in which we discuss the preamble, but that's, that's something worth building out because, yes, that's, that's, a, that's a very good point. Um, with respect to... Can I just yeah. intervene on that point? I was surprised you were, you were so surprised. I thought we put it in there. 
Uh, we made it, it, was, it was sort of in there for you, John. Uh, you get to it eventually. You just have to work your way through other. You know, you don't you don't go there first. You don't use the preamble to create ambiguities. To to paraphrase Justice Scalia or anybody who uses the parole evidence rule, for example, Alex Kaczynski, um, you find ambiguity or vagueness and eventually you work your way towards the preamble, but we acknowledge that you get there. Uh, so I thought you would be ecstatic about our uh, inclusiveness uh, rather than repudiating it, even if it you know, might take us, what quote, where we don't want to go. Who knows about that? We, have, we can't presuppose that. Um, in response to Chris Green's point, um, we don't take a position with respect to the burden of persuasion in the papers. Uh, we talk about the burden of production and how important it is in the context of implementing judicial duty to exercise independent judgments um, to put the burden on the government because the government is most likely to have the relevant information concerning its purposes and ends. Um, but our objection at length to John McGinnis's uh, point is not about the specific positioning of presumptions that he agrees upon, but the idea that there is a specific positioning of presumptions that's mandated by the constitutional text. And, and let me suggest that reading the paper over for the conference um, in anticipation of John's uh, commentary um, led me to wonder if Chris isn't right and that that discussion is just too much, it's too extraneous to the main, the paper's already long and it's got a, a lot of moving parts. Uh, and that might, and, and we have eliminated some fights we've picked with people that aren't in the paper, uh, and uh, and and so this may be another one of those things that really doesn't need to be in this paper at all. And I would definitely go back and look at the paper to see if it actually, how much work does it actually do in our exposition of our basic thesis? And the answer might be it just doesn't do that much work. I might just uh, say a word, uh, not to, to re-litigate this dispute, but about the nature of the language of the Constitution. Because I think Chris Green is exactly right. Uh, judicial power, of course, has an ordinary meaning to people, but it has a deeper legal meaning. And that is the most, I think, one of the most important facts about the nature of having a legal document. Of course, these words may often have some meaning, but they often have a deeper Meaning, And also, I think what your point illustrates, that once we, are, we move from ordinary meaning to legal meaning, we move to a different world. In ordinary meaning, people have a sense of what the words are. And le lawyers know, oh, that's an in that, that we're going to have to look up. We're going to have to do some research on that. So once we move from ordinary meaning to legal meaning, which can be in a word like due process or cruel and unusual, which may have some ordinary, <laughs> we move to a world, the kind of world we all do. We write 50-page papers after doing all the research. And I think that's really is what, is what's at stake in, or one of the things that's in stake in, de, in determining whether we think that the Constitution is written in the language of the law or written in ordinary meaning. And I think that's an excellent example of it. Uh, okay, we're never gonna get through our entire queue. Um, in fact, we're gonna have to ask for speedier or more concise questions in our last uh, triumvirate here in order to stay on schedule. Um, so our last group, it looks like, is going to be David Upham, Will Bode, and Milo Sahani. Um, I just wanted to uh, maybe suggest some things that could be more, maybe some things that could be less. Uh, and this is related to some other topics already about the relationship between interpretation, construction, letter, spirit. But I was struck by this because the quote you provided from Blackstone about the spirit of the law is that it actually limits what the letter would be. That is to say, it's not an addition to, it's a principle of subtraction. Um, and so when you understand, and, and as part of the interpretive process, 
um, and so um, I was I was there. I was saying, okay, I, I need more on their taxonomy of terms in relationship to Blackstone, um, and because it's such a deep and, and long-standing tradition uh, of talking about letter and spirit of law. Um, if you're offering something that's that's new or that's counter that's sort of opposed to that tradition, it'd be better to elaborate what you mean by spirit. If it's not, um, this is what the letter says: spirit takes things back. The spirit giveth taketh away. <laughs> um, the the second thing about that is, um, if that is the case, um, the question is whether um, constitutions are as laws or as contracts might be not subject to the same rule because there's something about the solemnity of the Constitution that simply does not allow judges to second guess. Um, and I think you, you would probably you would agree with that. But Blackstone, the way he says it, it seems to be like you just say, we've got to just delete this part because it's too far. It's too extreme because it's beyond the purposes of the law. <coughs> um, conversely, in terms of just, um, uh, I don't know whether you need to, and it's a massive topic to get into the question of who are the precise parties to the contract. Um, because you say here, and I know you cite your other text, which I haven't read, which I should read, and that is, first come rights, then come governments. Um, and my first response to that is, I thought you have the formation of a people. Locke is two contracts, not one. Um, which completely changes the relation, the, the, the place of individual rights vis-a-vis -vis the, the, and the people vis-a-vis -vis the government. Um, and it's just a very contested thing to speak of, um, to speak of the people as, as, as an aggregate of individuals who have a direct relationship to their government rather than being mediated through a community. I'm sorry. Well. <laughs> I spent too long. Just quickly, uh, I wonder why judges should engage in good faith construction in particular. So it's easy to see for the executive where the faithful execution clause controls. And I wonder if there's, uh, wonder why this is something judges should do. In the spirit of convergence we seem to be doing, one answer you could have is it's a common law method of interpretation as evidenced by the good faith and fair dealing rule in contract law, and common law rules of interpretation apply to the Constitution, uh, sort of bringing you on board to the law of interpretation crowd. But that might not be your answer, and if that's not your answer, do a different one. Um, and then Mila. So, uh, you know, for, to, to show a breach of contract, you need formation, um, you need breach, you need, and then subsequently you'll have a question of uh, damages or remedy. You focus in this paper a lot on formation and on breach, but I wonder uh, what the damages are uh, for bad faith <laughs> construction. Um, and I, I suppose you might say, well, you know, it's a it's the injury to the, you know, the moral entitlement or the the, the, the good of the you know it's it's some kind of moral injury that's been been perpetrated. Um, and if that's the case, then what's the remedy? Uh, Frank Easterbrook says, you know, in exchange for receiving power and lifetime tenure, I agree to limit the extent of my discretion. It seems to follow to me from that that then a breach of that duty should should constitute cause for removal from office, and I wonder if you're willing to, uh, you know, uh, remove from the bench everyone who applies, you know, say Williamson v. Lee Optical. <laughs> uh, okay, so we have 46 seconds left. So that's 23 uh, seconds for each. I, I would say that's a start. <laughs> Couldn't hurt. You want to say? Um, yeah, so I, in response to uh, Will's point, I would say that judges are not unique in this respect. Um, all government actors, according to, um, I think, what uh, Sadom, uh, Guy Seidman, Gary Lawson, and um, Robert Adelson have shown, are fiduciaries. 
Uh, they all draw their power from the Constitution. With that po uh, power comes corresponding duties. One of those duties is the duty to engage in good faith constitutional construction within your sphere. Um, in the context of the judges, we've provided a framework that is specific to them. In future works, we're going to provide frameworks that are specific to legislative and executive branch actors as well. So judges are not distinctive in this place. They have particular institutional responsibilities, and we focus on those. But yes, what we're arguing for more broadly um, is good faith construction on the part of all government actors because they're all fiduciaries. Um, Go ahead. You about to say something? Just you, finish. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, that's all I got to say. I would say that the uh, the remedy, yes, is in certain circumstances impeachment. Um, we want to put some meat on the bones of precisely when that would take place, owing to concerns that Christina raised earlier. Um, but uh, yes, that is the constitutionally prescribed remedy, and uh, you know, Hamilton said it was sufficient. Uh, I just want to say this is the first time we've presented this paper publicly. Uh, we very much appreciate the feedback that we've gotten so far. We hope that if you have commentary uh, that you didn't get a chance to ask us about that you will send it to us and we promise to evaluate that content in good faith. Uh, uh, we, we will take this very seriously uh, as we uh, refine this idea uh, going forward into eventually a book project. So thank you. Thank you, John.